Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. There is no shortage of words written about climate change and the goal of reaching net zero. But there is a shortage of practical suggestions about how to get to net zero. Even governments committed to net zero are wondering how they're going to do it. Eric Lonergan has tried to address that problem with the book Supercharge Me, Net Zero Faster. It's co-authored with Corinne Sawyers and it sets out to suggest ways that uh, net zero can be achieved. So welcome to you, Eric Lonergan. Thanks, Owen. And it's not just that you say you have uh, policy proposals that you think will help get to net zero. You you also think you can do it in a way that will bring immediate benefits to people. It all sounds a bit too good to be true. Uh, let's start with your ideas about extreme positive incentives for change, because that's really at the heart of the book. Yeah. Uh, and you call them epics, uh, as one might. Uh, so what's an epic? So an epic is exactly what you said. It's an extreme positive incentive for change. So one of the reasons we wrote the book was, you know, I, I'm trained as an economist and have been looking at the area. I'm, I'm, I'm a policy economist who so have been involved in areas of fiscal and monetary policy. And I was preoccupied by the overwhelming focus in kind of in, 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 in net zero policy, which was aimed at carbon taxes. And we can come back to why that's sort of become the prevailing narrative, but it has. And I came to the conclusion very quickly that that was both bad economics and disastrous political economy. The fact that most people in our society associate green with tax is, is very, very counterproductive and I think very misleading. And to counter that, we came up with the idea of epics. And epics are actually what you learn if you look at the success stories. So, so what are the success stories in the move towards net zero? The biggest sex success story by a mile in practical terms is the collapse in the price of renewable electricity. Right. And this is where, as you rightly said, this all sounds too good to be true. How can we all very quickly experience benefits on the journey to net zero? Well, I'll give you one example of it immediately. Um, the UK government has just done some uh, awarded um, new contracts for contracts for differences. Again, we don't have to go through the detail, but these are effectively a bidding process whereby um, providers of offshore wind in the United Kingdom bid from the government to get a fixed price contract. So they'll only build the offshore wind if they have a guaranteed price for the electricity that they generate. Now, the price that has just been agreed in the latest round of contract for differences is 75% lower. That's 75% lower than it was when the first contracts were done in 2015. And it is a fraction of the prevailing electricity price. 
So there is a very concrete example of how if we were generating most overwhelmingly, if our electricity prices were currently being set by the cost of of renewable electricity, we would not be facing a cost of living crisis in the UK. In fact, we would have the cheapest electricity uh, for generations. Okay, can I just stop you, just slow you down there a bit? Because that's an interesting example of a a particular policy uh, proposal, the sort of procedures for setting the price of electricity in offshore wind farms. Or That's right. Uh, And, you know, you're saying that's worked. I just want to go back to the carbon tax idea, because I mean, that is you're saying, you know, you don't like it, but the polluter pays is a very old principle. And, you know, it has worked. I mean, it, 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 the polluter pays has helped clean up rivers and the air. Uh, so why are you so convinced that doesn't play a role as well? So it, it is an extremely, in fact, I think the, 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 even the fact that there's such a beautiful phrase like the polluter pays reveals the in, intuitive appeal. Right. It appeals to our sense, also to our sense of, of justice and fairness. And in fact, I think that's the, the, the actual argument for carbon taxes is not a practical one. It's, a, it, it's really an ethical one, which says, well, the person who's creating the pollution should be paying for it, which seems like a very re- re- reasonable ethical stance to take. So wh- why does it not work? There's a very simple reason, which is that it's something called the price elasticity of demand. Now, what, what does that mean in English? What that just means is how sensitive is our demand for a good of service when the price changes. And it is a structural feature of most carbon intensive activities that demand is not very price elastic at all. In other words, if you increase the price very significantly, people don't change their behavior because for some reason they need to continue. They don't seem to be able to switch into something else. And that's why what what on the face of it seems like a very good idea, you can entirely understand how all these economists sat down and they went, this is pollution. Pollution is an externality. The right way to deal with an externality is to tax it. So we need to just get the carbon tax right and, and everything will work out perfectly. The problem with that model is it doesn't focus on what we want to do, which is collapse the demand for for carbon intensive activities. Now, let me give you a really simple example, which kind of makes this very clear. The history of carbon taxes has actually been to raise revenue precisely because demand is price inelastic. So if you look at the US federal interest rate network, so the the, the funding of the federal road network in the United States was actually partially funded, if not entirely funded, by petrol taxes. Why is that? Because petrol taxes didn't cause a collapse in the use of petrol. Uh, and so it became a re- very reliable uh, source of revenue. And in fact, that has been one of the great appeals. Now, what we suggest in the book, and this is where it kind of ties everything that we've discussed together, which is epics, and also why the externality taxing framework is incorrect. What we argue is that via epics, what you need to do is target the relative price of substitutes. Now, that is, t- it, what does that mean? That is something really straightforward, which is, Instead of taxing the carbon intensive activity, make sure that there is a viable substitute and then target the relative price of the substitute and ideally make the substitute much cheaper. So let's take this example of petrol taxes versus our policy. The United Kingdom has pursued the carbon tax approach, right? which is we're going to, we have the highest tax rate amongst uh, the OECD, I believe, on 
petrol duty. And it's a very, very high petrol taxes. We have one of the lowest rates of electric vehicle penetration, right? Because most people have already bought their car. Uh, that's a sunk cost. That's a big investment. Uh, petrol prices go up. They have no choice. All they do is they have to pay more and effectively taxes and increase petrol prices make people poorer. They don't really have a dramatic impact on their behavior. If you target the relative price of a substitute, you would not target the price of the fuel. You'd say, where does the substitute exist? The substitute exists when you go to purchase a car. And this is what the Norwegians have done using an Epic. So what the Norwegians have done is, ah, let's target the substitute because that is price elastic. Most people really don't care if they go to buy a new car, whether it's an electric vehicle or a fossil fuel vehicle. They're going to be pretty much indifferent between the two. What's happened in Norway is, is the list price. You go into a car dealership, the electric vehicle is cheaper, and they have something called the 50% rule, which is an epic, which means you pay 50% less tax, um, toll roads are 50% lower. They've just tried to make an extreme positive incentive. Lo and behold, Norway is the most highest penetration rate of electric vehicles in the developed world. As much as 95% of vehicle sales are electric. Uh, and of course, by definition, of course, you have to have a good charging infrastructure because you want to make it pretty much a perfect substitute. But that highlights to you that there's two things we can learn from the Norwegian example and from UK offshore wind is if you want to change behavior rapidly and in a way that the population will react positively to it uh, and in a way that has a dramatic impact on emissions or actually works from a practical standpoint. Deploy epics, i.e. create substitutes and price those substitutes at an extreme price differential, and then you will get dramatic behavioral change. Okay, so that, 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 that's all fine, except presumably uh, the carbon tax is producing significant revenues for the government, and the tax breaks on the electric cars in Norway is, uh, means the government's giving up a lot of tax. So, uh, you know, this is not a cost-free exercise. The government's revenues will be significantly affected by this. You're absolutely right. Um, in the case of the electric vehicle, the the Norwegians are doing it with, via loss of revenue. Well, there's, there's two separate issues you have to, you have to ask yourself. You have to say, uh, that, that's one point. That is not the case. There's, one kind of has to treat the, the two dimensions separately. That is not the case with uh, offshore wind in the UK. Actually, what all that's really being done there is actually de-risking of the electricity price. So there's really two dimensions to this. And it, and it goes back to having a coherent strategy about getting to net zero, which I think it's, it's, it's important that we spend a little bit, bit of time outlining. So it, effectively, it, when, when one looks at the expert opinion on this, there, there really is only one coherent practical strategy on the table. And that strategy says make electricity as sustainable as possible. Right? So currently in the world, about 20, 25% of global electricity generation is via renewables. We have to get that up to 80%. And then the experts will disagree whether you can go from 80 to 100 and, and what is required to do that. But we need to get it from sort of 20 to 60 to 80 to 90%, as high as we possibly can. Right? Now, in order to do that, we are actually creating wealth. And the reason we're creating wealth is because all of those investments in renewable electricity, so the return on those investments is significantly higher than the state's cost of capital. Right? So if you take the UK as an example, the UK can borrow for 10 years at a fixed rate of interest of 2%. 
And if you look at the return, for example, on those offshore wind at lower than prevailing electricity, at a fraction of prevailing electricity prices, those investors in offshore wind are still make, expecting to make 6 to 8% returns. Now, that is actually wealth creating. If I can borrow it too and generate a 6 to 8% return, I'm actually creating wealth. So at the moment, when it comes to our the capital investment, we're kind of committing two crimes. First of all, we're destroying the planet for future generations. And second of all, we're squandering a huge opportunity to create assets and create wealth. So I'd like to ask you, because I mean, this is something that under, you know, is, is, comes out throughout the book, is debt is cheap. Just get lots of debt and use it to achieve this policy objective net zero. Uh, well, a couple of things. Debt is getting more expensive. Uh, so some of the numbers in the book, you know, it's bound to happen, I suppose, but they're, they're sort of inevitably slipping away a bit and, and the interest rates are, are going up. And secondly, you never really address the question of, you know, how far can you go with this policy? And what, you know, I, I mean, I thought when I read it, it's fair for me to ask you, what percentage of debt to GDP is, in your view, Acceptable. I mean, I think at the moment the UK's over a hundred percent, or is it something like? Yep. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you okay with one hundred and fifty? You know, how far do you take it? One of the huge frustrations I have when people discuss the debt to GDP ratio is what you should look at in any sensible accounting is what's called the net debt. Right? N- nobody looks. If I say to you, "Oh my gosh," let's say I compare two households and I go, "Oh, oh you know, one's got a, a, a million pound mortgage." and the other's got a £100,000 mortgage, that million-pound mortgage is absolutely insane. Well, no, it's relative to the value of the asset, right? If I've got a million-pound mortgage on a £10 million home, or I could have a £100,000 mortgage on a £50,000 home, um, it's clearly the one with the lower mortgage. Because it, So what, you, what, what one is interested in in any balance sheet is you take liabilities and you, and, and you take assets. And part of the the huge frustration, this is one of the aspects of this narrative that is uh, appallingly discussed in the public sphere, uh, is we're talking about creating assets. So um, when I suggest in the book, when we argue that the government should borrow, it is precisely for the gen- for creation of capital assets, in which so you are squandering wealth. So the point is, is that if you borrow at two, and you invest in a gener- in an asset that generates seven, what that actually tells you is on a 20-year view, you would actually be able to repay your debt and have your asset. So so you're actually giving up an opportunity for wealth creation. It's completely different to borrowing on the credit card and, you know, going on a bender, you know, on the the cost of the soul, right? I mean, or, or very, very different, for example, to having to borrow during COVID and support people whilst they stay at home, necessary though that was. There's a huge difference between borrowing to, to buy assets. So one should always look at the net debt of the state. And in fact, that is also why the, the numbers you quoted on the UK, although true in terms of gross debt, are very misleading in terms of net debt, because about a third of that is in fact owned by the Bank of England, which is the government. So that the actual net debt of the United Kingdom is closer to 60 or 70%. So, okay, so you feel that the UK could take on much more debt. I mean, let me just put to you what I'm sure a market economist would say is, right, fine, if, if you can borrow money at 2%, and you can make uh, 6%. I, mean, I don't know if that's enough to to tempt uh, one of the major corporations probably is. You know, why would you need the government to do it? I mean, these, the, if, if it's so attractive, uh, the private sector would do this. 
which is exactly what's happening. So if you look at the case of offshore wind in the UK, yeah. The question we should be asking ourselves is, does it make sense when we as a state can borrow it too, that the private sector in many is, is making 6 or 8%, wouldn't it be more astute for us to reduce that, that required rate of return to 4%, say, and increase the capacity by a third or double the capacity and accelerate the decommissioning of the, the polluting and, and carbon intensive assets within electricity generation. Do you see what I mean? So you're, you're absolutely right. The reality at the moment is, is, is that the private sector is generating a six to 8% return, producing electricity at a fraction of current electricity prices. And if we wanted to, we could further reduce their cost of capital, and which either means we could get them to build more or reduce the price of electricity. Like that, that's the kind of madness of the current situation. Okay, but that's not, I, mean, I think you're saying there, why doesn't the government do it? Because it, it can borrow cheaply and it's not got such a profit motive, right? Uh, well, can I just clarify one point? Yeah, I'm yeah. not necessarily saying the government needs to do it. I, I, I actually think it, that totally depends on which geography you're looking at. So, like the French government seems to do it quite efficiently. The South African government seems to do it very inefficiently, right? If I look at the utility and if I look at the French state-owned electricity utility has currently has pretty much the lowest electricity prices in Europe and, and that, that, that kind of, they, they seem to have the institutional structure. If you look at a, a country like South Africa, the state-owned utility is resulting actually in disastrous domestic electricity policies. So I'm not advocating that the state does it, but I am advocating broadly that the developed world use the state's balance sheet. Now, you can you can do that and make money as a state because you can charge a premium for using your balance sheet. But, but there should be a public policy question here about, for example, effectively, we are doing that in, 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 with, with offshore wind in the UK because we're de-risking the electricity price for the the for the for the private sector by giving them a fixed price contract their required rate of return is way way lower so that's a really smart policy but we could go even further than that for example and say well we'll also provide you say loan guarantees um, or we'll set up a state fund and provide you with cheaper equity so you don't have to make 6 or 8% returns. We think this is because of the the actual the external benefits associated with having renewable electricity, we'd rather you did this at a 4% return. Okay, well, I, I did want to spend some time on this debt thing, because, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's important for your book. It's an important argument you make. And, and obviously, it's controversial. And, you know, it's a subject of, well, I mean, at the moment, the uh, Conservative Party in the UK is having a leadership election where precisely these issues are, are being discussed every day, you know, how much debt, how much unfunded tax cuts can you have? What's, you know, there are lots of desirable policy outcomes, defence, welfare, education, how much can you borrow uh, for those goals. But I guess you're saying the energy sector is, is, you know, quite different to others. And it's a very long term investment, and you can guarantee prices, probably. Well, absolutely right. I mean, I know, and this is a really important point, you know, I wish they were having an intelligent debate, which instead of saying unfunded tax cuts, which is much more analogous to, to, you know, a binge on the credit card, if they were talking about using the state's balance sheet to tackle the cost of living crisis, for example, by accelerating renewable investment, or indeed accelerating, for example, solar panels, which you, you could actually build solar capacity within a, a factor of 
you know, w- within a year, or indeed trying to accelerate, you know, the the transitioning the 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 homes, which is a much harder issue, actually, but regulating temperatures in, in, in buildings is going to be a critical component that we have to do. But that is capital investment. Yeah, there are a lot of a, a lot of intelligent policies that could be funded effectively a, a, along those lines. But I, but I think the key distinction that, that I really want to make here, and apologies if I haven't made it very clearly, is if you borrow for assets, you know, if you take out a mortgage increase your mortgage and build an extension that improves the value of your property. That, that, that should not just be perceived as an increase in debt. There's an asset on the other side. And if the asset has more value than, than the debt, you have actually increased your wealth. Now, borrowing for tax cuts or borrowing for other factors is not, does not um, increase your, your asset base. So that is a really, really important distinction um, to be made. Having said that, and you know, in the interest of being totally open and honest about this, it is the case that if you use if you use tax exemptions to encourage the take up of electric vehicles, that is lost revenue, um, and that has to be put in the context of one's entire fiscal process. My my own view there is though that I would, you, you know, in effect, we have to do this. So I, I actually think it's it's intelligent to separate the fiscal accounts from effectively the policies that are necessary for the to get to net zero because then one should actually treat well what are the right ways as a society that we want to tax efficiently and that depends on lots of other cyclical economic factors um, it shouldn't really be getting in the way of the you know the, the, the need to transition to net zero okay so I, th- I think we've discussed you know a couple of quite specific things how to get people onto electric cars how to fund an offshore wind farm. Uh, your your book is yeah much broader than that, and one of the uh, things you have in it is is you, know, you use phrases which you think help explain the kind of uh, issues at stake when policymakers are trying to dream up ways of dealing with all this. And those three phrases, I thought it'd be quite helpful if you just talked us through them. Are uh, simple maths, mini musks, and herding sheep? So can you deal with simple maths first? Yeah. So we we start up we start out really by just briefly trying to explain to you know in a way that a non-expert can can grasp what the actual strategy to get to net zero is and 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 I should give credit here to Adair Turner who is the chair of the um, Energy Transition Commission who who heavily influenced our thinking here um, and, and this is essentially the idea that if we make electricity generation as close to 100% renewables and we effectively electrify our homes, in other words, make uh, heating and cooling of our homes electricity-based, we make transport electricity-based and we make using existing technology manufacturing electricity-based. So that, that simple policy of renewable electricity and then electrify everything that we do, that would reduce emissions by 75%. So that is the kind of mission critical. And the idea of simple maths is that most of that, because we already have the technology, we think we can really combine using the policy ideas that that you and I have just discussed. So you can solve that either with epics or by using the state's balance sheet, specifically in the electricity sector. So these extreme positive incentives, if you get the, if you make the green option cheaper in each sector, um, and you get the 
capital infrastructure right in electricity generation, that would result in in a collapse of something like 70, 75% of our emissions. Now, we call that simple maths because effectively that's just really a policy choice. We can do that now with existing technology. It will there'll be elements where it's wealth creating. So in the in the capital infrastructure of electricity generation, there will be areas where it has a fiscal cost, which is in the extreme incentives that need either subsidies or tax exemptions. But you could also, once you've got a substitute, you can also increase taxes. So I have no qualms in saying, let's increase the tax on the petrol vehicle at the same time as I make the electric vehicle um, tax exempt. And you could do that across the board. You could do that with, if you want to get people to you know eat plant-based burgers where there's a substitute versus the meat burger my view is really simple just make the plant-based burger 30 percent cheaper so rig the taxation raise the tax on one cut the tax on the other so when you go into burger king the impossible burger is 30 percent cheaper if everything we know about human behavioral change that's our best chance of getting it to work the idea that you know the moral argument is suddenly going to get the whole world to wake up and become vegan is totally and utterly implausible. So that's simple math. So simple math is arguably 70, 75% of the problem. Right. And, and so just to clarify, I mean, just to sort of emphasize what you're saying, the, the simple maths is using numbers, you know, subsidies and, and uh, incentives to use existing technology and existing markets to work better f- vis-a-vis net zero. That's exactly right. So extreme positive incentives, altering the cost of capital, we can do those to effectively make electricity generation 80% plus renewable, to electrify homes, to electrify transport, and to electrify manufacturing under existing technology. Yeah. Next up, mini musks. So mini musks are where we need new technologies. So there are sectors and areas where we have really big problems, and they are non-trivial sectors. So probably the two most striking examples are cement and uh, air travel. Now, I have to say, I'm very loath to say technologies don't exist, because what I have learned even since writing the book is anybody who tells you a technology doesn't exist for something probably doesn't know about all of the new technologies that are emerging from one day to the next, right? And it is quite astonishing. And I think that is one of the dimensions that I must say that does make me optimistic. So I'm not at all convinced, for example, that the technology doesn't exist in in cement. All I know is that there isn't one that is currently being scaled. But I suspect if I did sufficient research, I'm going to find that there are technologies emerging very quickly. But really what we're saying is there are big areas where there isn't an obvious current technology that is dominant. Um, and cement and air travel are two big sectors. Cement in particular, cement is is maybe 7 or 8% of global emissions. It might even be increasing as a share of emissions. So it's you know analogous to a sizable country, and we need to do something about it. And that is somewhere where the private sector, the public sector, needs to throw large amounts of capital for innovation. And so that's the kind of mini Musk category. We don't necessarily want everybody to be megalomaniac megalomaniac Elon varieties, but we do need lots of entrepreneurial and scientific innovation. But from what you're saying, there's nothing particularly you can do in policy terms to uh, encourage that. It's just a question of the universities and and the the R&D departments of companies coming up with technological advance. 
I think, I, and, and I would say there, there's extraordinary technological advance. There is a kind of, I, I think, a, in, in financial markets, a kind of bubble in these technologies and capital being thrown at these technologies. But as a society, we benefit from that. So I, I think the private sector is also doing a huge amount of bubble financed R&D in these areas. The, the government has a role in scaling them and in tackling vested interests. So it, it, I, I would be deeply concerned, for example, about the cement industry, where it is my understanding that there are competing technologies, but they are being excluded and they're excluded in part by regulation and by regulatory capture. So, so when we talk about the losers in the book, we outlined there are big losers from the path to net zero that we've described. And they're kind of obvious. They're effectively the owners of existing fossil fuel assets. So if I own, you know, gas-fired power generation in the UK, they don't like to hear this 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 uh, narrative because it's going to accelerate the it's going to sh- dramatically shorten the life of their asset, right? Because they want to keep that asset going for 50, 60 years. If I say, well, actually we could have re- 100% renewable in a decade, that would mean all of those oil oil powered gas powered assets will collapse in value. Now take cement the cement industry stands to lose billions and billions and billions. Um, so understandably, they are trying to capture the regulator. They're trying to, this is also one of the problems with a lot of these carbon tax and carbon trading schemes, is they tend to be organized with industry consultation and the industry is incentivized to talk down the potential for technological innovation. So to cut a long story short, what the state should be doing is saying, we are going to actually make unlevel the tilt the playing field in favor of the uh, new technology and and facilitate scaling it up and that can be done through really aggressive regulations um, but also I think potentially uh, with support from capital so what if you look at the history for example of the solar industry you know, solar power was not it was expensive 30 years ago now it's the cheapest form of electricity depending where you are in the world. Um, but that's because of decades of subsidies. Yeah, well, that is interesting. Obviously, that it, it did take that uh, government intervention to to, to to make the solar sector successful. I did actually want to ask you, it's a slightly at a tangent, but uh, I mean, do you know why? I mean, it seems so obvious that every house, every new house anyway, should have solar panels, and yet they don't. Why not? Do you, I mean, it, it just seems obvious. I mean, I agree. And I, I think here's an area where, you know, you mentioned, for example, you know, clean air and pollution. What I would say to you is I, I actually think if you look at the history of it, taxes have played a relatively small role. Its dominant role is regulation. Um, you know, for example, if you look at the auto industry in terms of emissions, that's almost entirely due to regulations. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I Absolutely, we should be, you know, the entire, whether it's... Um, commercial real estate, you know, office buildings or its new homes, they should all be fully electric and, you know, absolutely using whatever technology is is most cost effective. You mentioned solar, absolutely, or whether it's um, heat pumps, absolutely. I think a lot of that can be done uh, via regulation because, again, if you think about it, you know, this is one of the things we try to talk about in the book as well as about just being realistic about human behavior. 
you know, it's really, really difficult to get people to go through huge inconvenience if they're either purchasing a property or they have an existing property. You can imagine, you know, maybe a retired couple um, and, and then, you know, are they going to be able to insulate by putting in second walls or the, these things are particularly with a very diverse housing stock. This is creates huge inconvenience for people. You have to make things. This is why we advocate epics extreme positive incentive, minimize inconvenience. So it does require clever policies along the lines that you're describing. Yeah, but but when you think about, let's say, solar panels on new homes and new offices and new commercial buildings, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, which would not be a big uh, percentage of the value of the asset. So, I mean, quite easy to do. Why, uh, you must have thought about why that hasn't happened. So, so is that regulatory capture by house builders and, and other builders? You know, it's a mix. It's very interesting when people say to me, an awful lot of the time, why isn't this stuff happening? The, the curious thing is you find it is happening in some places and it isn't happening in others. And, and sometimes there are good logical reasons and there is regulatory capture. An awful lot of the time, it's a failure of the mind. And again, this is something we come back to time and time again in the book. I think a lot of this is, is, is a failure of understanding narrative and very often people actually haven't thought of doing these things. I mean, so very interesting. I was just in South Africa, this is where, which is a very interesting case point, case study, and poses some enormous challenges in terms of how a, a country like trans- South Africa transitions. Now, there you have a state-owned electricity utility that is failing to deliver consistent power generation, not to mention failing hugely to transition off uh, carbon-intensive electricity generation. But the private sector there, actually, yeah, most of the... The buildings are being recommissioned in in many, for example, in Cape Town with solar panels, Um, and that's where they have an incentive to do it. But you then get into the conflicts of interest, and this is where actually the the state-owned utility is charging the private sector for the installation of solar panels because they don't want to have the loss of revenue. Right. So there's bound to be complex. Yeah, there are going to be winners and losers, and that, that creates problems. Um, so, so behavior change you've already talked about because we've done our simple maths, our mini musks, and this is now herding sheep, which is behavior change. And you're, you know, you've made the point already. Herding sheep is difficult. Absolutely. You know, if some people take offense at this because they think it sounds patronizing or that we're advocating, you know, like like uh, policies that I really don't like, which I do find quite patronizing. These sort of ideas of nudging people and things I, I don't particularly like. Um, I, I. I consider myself to be a sheep, right, in the sense that I think one's just realism about human behavior. Most people will only change their behavior if they have an an extreme financial incentive to do so, if other people are doing it, or if the product is far superior. There are a minority of people who tend to be, you know, first movers or either extremely ethically motivated, for whom we should all have great admiration and respect, because usually we end up following them. <laughs> so, so in the book, we we kind of are big odd advocates of of the role of minorities, uh, minorities who are at the cutting edge of social change. But we just don't think policymakers should be relying on it. And that's the, really the the, the the herding sheep is is areas like you know, people's ultimately comes back to kind of changing attitudes of consumer behavior, whether that's our diet, whether that's, you know, fast fashion, whether that's air travel. If we don't have an existing technology that we can scale, there are there there are going to be over the next 10 or 20 years areas where we want to try and get people to change behavior, but they are really, really hard. And, and my, my, you know, instinct is to say wherever we can, 
epics are our, our best chance of success there. That's uh, like the you know, very, very significant price drop on electric cars in Norway. Yeah. So, so, so actually, why? I mean, maybe it'd be useful since uh, you're saying that is the way to create behavior change. What other examples can you give of these extreme incentives to change behavior? Well, it's very interesting because we're starting to see countries adopt them. Um, so Italy, for example, in the last 18 months has adopted something very similar for, I believe, its heat pump policy. And you've seen uh, astronomical take up and you've seen something similar, I think, also in a number of different countries with solar panels. So where extreme incentives have been introduced, um, you've tended, you tend actually to get way more success than anybody anticipates, which then, of course, ends up, this is why it tends to be slightly boom bust. Um, and often what happens is, is, you know, then the treasury intervenes and goes, oh, my God, this is costing us too much money because it's too successful. Um, and, and I think that's something that, that, that policy need, makers, you know, need to bear in mind. Um, I must say my, my own personal view here is as though is that in contrast to the carbon tax, you know, if you raise an awful lot of money out of a carbon tax, it's not working because you haven't collapsed demand for carbon. Uh, I think if you're if you if it ends up costing you too much because you've got a subsidy scheme for people to take up to, to take up uh, heat pumps, you know, that's a sign of success and one shouldn't be afraid of that. Now, again, you know, I, I think there can be a lot of panic here about the sort of fiscal position, but but I would still say if you look at aggregate fiscal accounts you know no government has run into fiscal trouble because their incentive scheme for solar panels has been too successful you know so there is a kind of moral panic of sorts or an immoral panic uh, of sorts on this so i think yeah there 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 are many examples where where we where we've seen this uh, working i but i want to pick you up on you know, your idea that no no government's gone bust subsidizing solar panels which I guess is true, but, but, and again, I don't have too many UK examples, but in the UK, a very significant proportion of, of households' electricity bills is paying for investment in renewables, right? I mean, it, it, you, you would probably know what that percentage is. 20% or something? Yeah. It's a lot. And, and, and in the middle of this cost of living crisis, people are saying, look, this is a net zero policy and, and households cannot afford it. And I totally agree. And I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have any green taxes. I think it's absolutely absurd. Um, it's both absurd economics and it's terrible politics for the reason that you've given. This to- it, it, we have a crazy state of affairs at the moment where renewable electricity is at a fraction of the cost of gas-based electricity currently. Right? The reason we have a cost of living crisis in Europe specifically is because we are dependent on gas right? and, and the global gas market. Now, gas and oil, fossil fuels, are, are inherently horrendously volatile. They do not have stable prices. You know, these prices collapsed during the pandemic and now they have gone through the roof. right? So, And it is madness that we have an electricity system which is one of our essential inputs to everything that we do as individuals, as businesses. And we are hostage to wild swings in the global market price of, of carbon, right? which is it's, it's, it's madness because we have a competing technology, which is way cheaper. And it's particularly pernicious when most households in the UK think that green electricity means that they're paying more tax. I mean, that's just appalling policy design. 
if we had what what we should be doing is say we're going to dramatically increase the rate of renewable investment we're going to dramatically reduce our dependence on natural gas and we're going to guarantee people falling electricity prices because what what, what the round of contract for differences illustrates is that you can build renewables with way lower electricity prices than are currently prevailing so we, we if we did not have gas gas is the marginal price effectively because the electricity generated by wind and solar are are close to free okay the price of electricity is determined by the suppliers that are fueling it with gas so we are hostage to the gas price because we are fossil fuel dependent this series tries to look at the future, and this one is the future of net zero. And there are, you know, many people who think it's just unobtainable, and, and you know, it'd be much more sensible to uh, go for something close to net zero rather than the absolute uh, objective of net zero. And that in any event, it is going to be uh, hugely expensive. Uh, so, how do you actually see it in 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 terms of the real world? And is it going to happen? You've got your proposals, you've got your ideas at, about how to help get there. But if I said, you know, the US, China, uh, East Asia, maybe South Asia, how likely is it that net zero will be achieved in, well, our children's lifetime? So I try to avoid not 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 wanting to be unhelpful. The, the question I always ask, it's a bit like when people say, you know, degrowth, for example, is a very popular idea at the moment. You know, do we have to like shrink our economies in order to make them sustainable? And I always come down with a question like that is, would the answer change my policies? And it's very clear to me that what that, that ultimately the answer to your question is a probability. So I got to say there's either there's a 60% probability we won't, or there's a 50% probably we will. I don't know what that probability is. It's a probability. But all that I really care about is whether my, what, what should I do differently? And it seems to me at the moment, the step one in the path to net zero is make electricity sustainable and renewable. And given the appalling cost of living crisis globally due to high price of gas and oil, we have, and the fact that they are controlled by, as we say in the book, the thugocracies, the theocracies, and the 1%, I can see absolutely no reason why I wouldn't accelerate my transition to renewable electricity generation. I think once you do that, electric vehicles, electric transport are cheaper. Um, actually, the 75 to 75% of emissions that we can collapse can be done where 99% of the global community is better off. It's not always obvious to me why certain issues get caught up in culture wars. You know, why would an anti-vaxxer tend to agree with a an anti-net zero person, for example? You know, they don't necessarily seem to have an awful lot in common as issues. Have you understood why net zero is part of the culture wars and that the whole business of climate change denial? Yeah, I think I wouldn't I wouldn't want to exaggerate that. I think there's been a collapse in climate denial. So, so climate denial has become a much smaller fraction and former climate climate denialists have now become ethical free riders. What I mean by that is if you take further the, the more nationalistic extreme right wing say of UK politics would have been climate denying 15 20 years ago. Just the weight now of scientific evidence if you just look at NASA can just show you pictures of the earth and you've kind of got live temperatures you can sort of see it happening nobody's going to really believe climate denial anymore but now what they say is oh there's no point us doing anything because of china 
which is a bit like saying to your children that, you know, you shouldn't do the right, you know, you, the morality is about, you know, as long as you can get away with it, you can lie and hit people and cheat. Uh, you know, uh, good behavior is for other people as if that's going to be a viable strategy. Um, I, think, I think there's been some huge strategic errors. I think the association of green with tax, uh, I'm afraid economists are to blame um, and, and the green movement itself. Um, because there is a kind of sense that, you know, everybody must suffer. Uh, so I think there have been some some major tactical errors, but there are also some very odd correlations there in terms of what people are likely to believe that I don't really have an insight into. But it's interesting. But I... Yeah, but do you think, do you think that the, the, the opposition to net zero as an objective is a significant factor? Uh, you know, or is it just a, a policy failure, lack of imagination by policymakers, and nervousness about uh, taking on more, more debt? You know, is it those sort of much more obvious things, or or is it, um, you know, is is the opposition to net zero sufficiently strong to be a significant factor? Yeah, I think it's a major problem. Think, think of the yellow jackets in 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 France, and I think they were absolutely correct. Um, and I think this is where it's been immensely dangerous, the hijacking of the policy by the externality tax carbon view um, for, for all the reasons that I've given, because actually the main effect of that is to make really make middle or low income people a lot poorer whilst achieving nothing with respect to net zero. And I find I think that's if you, if you look, there's been some very interesting work interviewing actually the Yellow Jackets and I think they made those arguments, and I would agree with them entirely. Um, so I think that there's a very good point. So I do think, and you know, the reality is, um, a lot of what I've been espousing is is a kind of minority view. So I do think we've got an awful lot of work in terms of changing perceptions, narrative, and indeed policies, so that people associate green options with cheaper. So they think we're better off because of this transition rather than thinking it's impoverishing us. Well, it's been very interesting to get uh, your views on this. It's, it's, it's so much in the current political debate everywhere, so it's great to yeah, have someone who's thought a lot about it to explain how they see it. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Owen. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the questions and, and, and the discussion. That was really interesting and enjoyable.